Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. The Gospel of Luke begins with a fascinating and in some ways miraculous story where an angel appears unexpectedly and announces a birth uh, to a woman who, who is unable to conceive. A son will be born, and that son will carry the gospel into the world. But it's not the story that you're thinking of. It's not the story of Jesus' birth that the gospel of Luke begins with. It's not the angel Gabriel's announcement to Mary that opens the story Rather, it is the birth of John the Baptist that the angel Gabriel comes first to announce. And he does it in a story that is fascinating and I think tends to be overshadowed by the other events. So this morning we're going to take a look at the story of the angel Gabriel coming to announce the birth of John the Baptist and the song of John's father, Zechariah, which is the Benedictus that we'll be looking at. Before we can tell the story, though, we have to set the scene so you can picture what takes place. This announcement is not going to happen some in some private place. It's actually going to happen at the center of life in Israel. This is an announcement of a birth that is going to be made in the very temple at the center of the city where God is worshipped. An angel will proclaim it inside the temple. So we've got a picture the temple for a moment. You know, there's an interesting ambiguity over the authorship of the book of Hebrews. If you remember when we preached through Hebrews, we talked about the fact that we don't actually know who wrote the book of Hebrews. There are various theories that have been put forward, Paul being one contender, but another contender is Luke, the author of this gospel. And it's very interesting that Luke's story should begin in the temple because the author of Hebrews tells us some interesting things about the temple. In Hebrews 9, he describes the way the temple was divided between two sections, the the holy place and the most holy place. And he tells us where things were found. They were divided by a great veil that separated the two. There were in the, in the holy place outside the veil, there were various objects, including an altar of incense. And this altar of incense is important because this is where our story takes place. The altar of incense was in the holy place that you would enter into before the veil, but it was placed immediately in front of that veil because this is where the, the prayers were offered up. It was associated so much with the most holy place behind the veil that when the author of Hebrews describes the layout, he actually associates this altar of incense with what is behind the veil. It makes sense because this is the place, this altar, this is the place where the priests go to offer incense and prayer to meet with God. Now, this altar of incense was made of acacia wood. It was covered in gold. It had horns on the side, and there were instructions that God had given about its use that are found in Exodus 30. I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but just a few verses that suggest the location and the purpose of this altar. 
And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning. When he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. When Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. Last week in the Magnificat, we talked about that word generations from generation to generation. It's covenantal significance. The altar of incense is established as a place where incense and prayer will be offered on behalf of the people to the God who has entered into covenant with them. Generation after generation, this will be done. It was set up in the days of the first Levitical priest, Aaron, and it continued generation after generation right down into the days of Jesus. This was still being done. Morning and evening, corresponding to the morning and evening prayers, this incense would be offered up. Now, in the beginning, in Exodus, we were talking about a tabernacle. But by the days of Jesus, all of this was taking place inside a gorgeous, huge, beautiful, elaborate temple. And because of the larger scale of everything, the temple was served by more priests than it had been served before. So the way that it worked in Jesus' day is they had 24 courses or or, uh, companies or teams of priests, and so that no priest would be worked too hard, they would just go on duty for a week at a time. And then every 24th week, your team would be up at bat again, and you would do service in the temple for that week. So there was a certain team that was Abijah's team. He was the head of that company. And within that company, there was a priest whose name was Zechariah. He was one of the guys who was uh, part of that unit. He was related probably through marriage to the Virgin Mary because he was married to Elizabeth, who she goes and visits, after the Annunciation that we talked about last week. So Zechariah is one of a group of priests who goes to serve in the temple, and a certain priest has to be selected each day to go to the altar of incense and offer the prayers. And the way that he is chosen is by lot. They cast lots to determine through this this random action who will go in and serve. And so Zechariah is the one who is chosen to go and offer the prayer. He's chosen by lot. He's chosen by chance. But as the story unfolds, we recognize that there's no chance involved. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. It makes sense because this was no random priest who entered the temple that day. He was the priest God had chosen because God had a message to give to him in particular. There's a message waiting for him. Which is strange, though, because the temple shouldn't be occupied. When Luke tells the story, he explains that all the people are outside the temple. All of them are there in worship, in prayer, and it's the priest who has been selected who enters in. So if you picture this scene, the multitudes are outside the building. The priest is the only one who enters in, and he enters in into that holy place by himself to approach the altar. It is um, kind of a lonely task, if you think about it. You're leaving behind everybody else. You find yourself indoors where they're outside, secluded. I'm sure he could hear uh, the muffled sounds of their voices, of their prayers. 
But as he entered into the temple, there would have been a kind of silence that entered in with him. This one man chosen by lot approaches into this holy place with a task to perform. He approaches the altar immediately before the veil that screens the most holy place from his view. And he must have felt how alone he was. Now, he wasn't the high priest, and he wasn't entering in behind the veil. You've heard that story before where they would uh, tie you to a rope and put bells on you before you went behind the veil so that if you died when you were back there, they could just pull you back out and nobody else had to die. You can imagine that was a popular job that a high priest had to do once a year, undertaken with awe. That's not what he was doing. He was just approaching the veil, approaching the incense, and yet I think the isolation would have been felt. He would have recognized that although he was working for the people, here he was on his own. Here he had entered into the loneliness, as it were. And it's interesting because this is happening 400 years after the close of the Old Testament. The last time the nation had had a priest, the last time that it had a, a prophet, rather, a prophet uh, sent by God with revelation from God whose, whose work would be recorded in the Old Testament, that was 400 years ago. Israel now was a nation without such a prophet. And Zechariah was a priest without a son. He served a nation without a prophet, and he was a priest without a son. He and his wife Elizabeth, Luke says, were advanced in years. They'd never had a son, no one to to carry on the, the family name, and there was no chance now of that happening. So this man who was uh, alone in life enters into this temple alone on behalf of a people who haven't had a prophet from God in 400 years. It wasn't just feeling alone, but there was a certain loneliness to that as well, a loneliness maybe that we could identify with as people who have felt the work of God in our lives, but maybe that feels like it was a long time ago. As people who sometimes continue to go through the motions of devotion without feeling the presence of God, people who feel that as we approach the altar, we enter into an empty place, a place where we find ourselves alone. For God hasn't entered in for quite some time. I think we can relate to what Zechariah must have felt as he entered in that day. He was a priest without a son, serving a nation without a prophet, advanced in years with no hope of fulfillment. Just as Israel had waited a long time for God to do something, and it hadn't happened, here was a man who had waited a long time for God to do something. And it hadn't happened. Zechariah was not alone, just as we are not alone. And his prayers that day, though they seem to have gone unanswered time and time again, his prayers that day would be heard and they would be answered. Now, the prayer that he was there to offer was a prayer of intercession, similar to what you just heard Lyle offer, interceding on behalf of the people. So it's not his own prayer. He's not going into the temple to tell God what, what he wants. He's going into the temple to intercede on behalf of Israel. We don't know what he prayed for. We don't know the exact content of his prayer. 
but we can infer that he was praying for some fulfillment of the promises God had made to Israel, some deliverance of Israel from the captivity that they experience now, from the shame that they experienced now. And it wouldn't be surprising if in the course of offering those public prayers on behalf of the people, he also thought of his own unfulfilled requests. And as he does that, as he concludes his prayer, he offers up his incense. Something strange happens. He realizes he's not alone. There is, in fact, someone in the temple with him standing beside the altar of incense, a person Luke describes as an angel. Zechariah is not by himself. Instead, there's someone there with him, and that someone declares a prophecy. He says to him, your prayers have been heard and will be answered. You will have a son. Your wife will conceive and bear a son, and he will be the prophet Israel longs for. All that Zechariah could have hoped for has been granted by this heavenly being. Zechariah, despite being a priest, is not the kind of guy who just takes things on faith. He has a skeptical streak, and so he asks the obvious question, okay, how can I be sure about this? It's funny when you think about it. You're a priest of God. You enter into the temple of God. An angel appears and gives you this prophecy. And your first question is, okay, but how can I be sure? Right? But you can relate. And he, he, he wants to know. He wants some kind of confirmation. Now, it's interesting. Remember, Mary, when she is, is receiving the news of Christ, she does ask a question like, how is this possible? But it doesn't seem like Zechariah's question is in the same vein based on the response. There's a little bit more skepticism, a little bit more of a challenge in Zechariah's question. Uh, how am I supposed to know this is really going to take place? And then the man speaks and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent from him with a message to you. If you think about it, Zechariah entered into the temple. He stopped short of going behind the veil into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant would have been located. He didn't go there, which on, on earth was the most holy place. But in standing before the veil, one had come to him who came from the most holy place above. Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God himself, carries the message down, momentous events are about to take place. After 400 years of silence, God now speaks to one of his priests and says, the time has come. It will begin now. God has heard your cry. The sign that Gabriel gives of confirmation isn't just revealing his identity, but he also gives another kind of sign. Uh, Zechariah is struck uh, kophos is the Greek word kophos, which means deaf and or dumb, probably both in the context of the story. So the sign that he asked for, give me a sign. It's like, okay, I'll give you a sign. You will be unable to hear or speak until these things come to pass. Sometimes you don't want to voice those questions in the presence of an angel. They lead to unexpected consequences. But imagine after having this revelation Zechariah staggers out of the temple. Right? The people are outside waiting. They've been praying and worshiping. They want to know what happened in there, and he can't tell them. 
He can't communicate, but it's clear from the state that he's in that he has had a vision from God. That's what they understand. And then Luke tells us Elizabeth does indeed conceive, and she conceals herself. She hides herself from the people. She goes into seclusion, and then that seclusion is broken when Mary visits her, which we saw last week. That's the first part of the story that Luke tells. He interrupts that story to tell the story of the Annunciation. And then once he's done that and Mary comes and visits Elizabeth, he picks back up with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, because it turns out Elizabeth gives birth to her child. And on the eighth day, when it's time for the child's circumcision, it's also time to name the child. And she tells them that the name of the child will be John. Now, she was advanced in years. She shouldn't have been able to have a child, but she has conceived and she has born a son. Luke says that that has removed her reproach. The reproach she felt for being childless has now been removed. But when she has this miraculous son and she brings him for his circumcision and she tells them what his name is going to be, they say, actually, we don't think that's, that's right. Let us stop you right there. They won't name her child the name that she has chosen uh, because no one else in her family has named this. And they think, you know what, let's go ahead and name him Zechariah instead. That would be better. But uh, Elizabeth protests, and they go and they ask Zechariah, who, remember, can't communicate, and he has to write on some kind of a tablet his answer, and he says to them, his name is John. And they marvel at this. They're astonished by this. Like, somehow they both know this is, this is the right thing. And so he is indeed named John, John the Baptist. And Zechariah suddenly prophesies. This man whose voice had been taken from him now has his voice back, and he prophesies. And although he didn't say it in Latin, if he had, he would have begun by saying, Benedictus, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. That is his song. After his silence is ended, he sings his song. Bless the Lord for redeeming his people. Bless the Lord for redeeming his people. Like the Magnificat that we saw last time, the Benedictus is a song in two parts. And the way the text is presented to you in your order of worship, the two parts are separated. Uh, the first part is verses 68 through 75, and that is a celebration of God's covenant faithfulness. The second part, which is a little bit shorter and goes through verse 79, that's actually a charge that the father gives to the newborn prophet, John the Baptist. So we'll take those two parts one after the other. First, a celebration of God's covenant faithfulness, and secondly, a charge to the newborn prophet. It's interesting to see continuity here between Zechariah's song and Mary's song. The themes that Mary spoke about are also present here. Remember, Mary spoke about God's faithfulness in keeping his promise to Israel. And she also spoke about uh, this, this complex relationship between humiliation and exaltation, that God uh, lifts up the humble just as he humbles those who are proud. And that demonstrates his power. So he keeps his promises, and he has the power to reward his people. And that reward comes not from their own merit or from their own strength, 
but from the hand of God. That was Mary's song. And now Zechariah sings essentially the same themes. Both songs will mention Abraham by name. So they don't just breathe the air of the covenant. They specifically mention Abraham by name. They specifically mention the promise handed to Abraham that we have become inheritors of through Jesus Christ. They demonstrate the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The two parts of the Bible aren't two different stories. There's a promise and then there's a fulfillment, but it's all the same. And those who sang about the coming of Jesus understood his coming specifically in Old Testament terms. He had come to fulfill the Old Testament promises. This was all part of that plan. So let's listen to the first part of the song, verses 68 through 75. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The praise being offered to God is specifically praise directed towards his saving work. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has redeemed his people. He has visited and redeemed his people. This is a song of praise, but it's specifically pointing at God's work of redemption, the work of salvation that he has undertaken for his people, that God made a promise to his people that he would send a Messiah, a Christ. And now he was fulfilling that promise, and the fulfillment of that promise would result in their redemption. That's why he sings. That's why he sings. He talks about Jesus here. He alludes to the name of Abraham later in the story, but he also talks about another significant covenant figure, which is King David. Jesus comes not only in fulfillment of the promise that is made to Abraham, but he comes in order to sit the throne of David, that he will be a king as David was a king, only his reign will last forever. Jesus is not a new solution. He's not a plan that God came up with after his original plan for Israel faltered. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one who was foretold by the prophets of old. You see here, the covenant language is very specific. We're told that he was spoken of by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. He is the one, Jesus is the one, who we were told would defeat our enemies, who would rescue us from all of those who hate us. Jesus is the one whose coming demonstrates God's mercy and God's grace. It fits together. It fits together. Jesus, in saving us from our enemies, 
connects to the themes that Mary sang about as well. And and if you recall, we talked how odd it is sometimes that we, we read of, of God uh, punishing the rich, punishing the proud, and rewarding the humble, rewarding the, the poor, but that what this is meant to illustrate is the power of God, the providential power, that we have what we have because he elevates us, not because of some strength that we possess on our own. Those who live in their own strength are humbled. Zechariah possesses something Mary possessed as well, which was a covenant memory. He understood what was happening in his life as something that was happening to the nation of Israel, not just to him. Now, here was a couple that that wanted a child and, despite all odds, received a child, but the celebration that he offers is celebration for the nation, not just for himself. It's not just that his hopes had been fulfilled. It's that Israel's hopes had been fulfilled. He remembers the covenant promises and sees how this promise fits within that larger narrative. You can't understand the story the Bible is telling unless you see it with that through line of covenant, the way that Mary saw it, and the way that Zechariah saw it. But what was the promise? What was the promise of salvation? What was the point of it all? When we think about God redeeming his people, the part that's easy for us to remember is the redemption from sin, like salvation from the consequences of sin. But Zechariah, although he mentions that, actually talks about what salvation is for. He talks about the purpose of salvation when he says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In other words, the people who, because of their sin, had been separated from God, will, by his grace, be restored to what they were meant to be, to be able to serve him in his presence without fear, in holiness and righteousness all their days, to be in the presence of God, to behold him in the way that Paul longs to behold him face to face, to have that beatific vision of the face of God. That's what's promised in these covenant promises, not just that you won't suffer the penalty of your sins, but also that you will commune with him face to face, that you will be restored and brought into communion with Jesus Christ. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has redeemed and is redeeming and will redeem his people. And the second part of the song is a charge to John the Baptist. The second part of the song addresses this newborn prophet and essentially gives him his marching orders, tells him what his mission will be. Zechariah says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace." John the prophet will prepare the way of the Lord. He has been sent as a forerunner 
to preach the gospel of Christ to come, to declare that there's one who's coming. As we heard earlier, I am unworthy to unlace the ties of his sandals. He is to proclaim the coming of Christ, to prepare the way. And he will do that. He will preach repentance. He will turn the hearts of the people. He will himself baptize the Lord Jesus, although he's reluctant, understandably, to do it when asked. And he will ultimately die a martyr's death as he faithfully proclaims his witness to Christ. That is the mission of John, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God. He preaches the atonement. He preaches the Lamb. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world are the words of John the Baptist when he sees Jesus Christ coming into his own. Christ will atone for our sins so that they are forgiven. This is how we are saved. This is the message proclaimed by the prophets. Knowing Christ's grace, knowing the mercy of God leads to salvation. This gospel, this good news is light shining in the darkness. The darkness, the absence of that good news, the absence of grace, the darkness in which people labor under their own strength for a salvation they can never attain and come to believe they don't even need. In that darkness, light appears. Light appears that cannot be overcome. It is the light of the gospel. It is a light that is enough to guide our feet. As the psalmist says, God's word is a lamp unto our feet here. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the light that guides us forward into the way of peace. The gospel leads us towards peace. The knowledge of salvation is the way of peace. And there is no other. We long for a lot of things, and in this season of longing, it's right to meditate on what we don't have, to meditate on our emptiness, on the anticipation of what is to come. And one of the things we do not have is peace. Peace on earth, goodwill to men. We sing about it, but we do not possess it. We do not have it. We long for it. We long for peace, for the end of warfare, For the end of strife, we long for it. Oftentimes we suppress that longing by believing it is unobtainable. Or we tell ourselves that this low-level conflict that we've managed to, to convince ourselves we've achieved, that that's peace. But it's not. There is no peace outside of the salvation of Jesus Christ because the peace that that salvation gives isn't just peace with ourselves. It's peace with one another and peace with the God who made us. And now the nation without a prophet had more than just a prophet. It had a prophet who proclaimed that a Savior was coming, that a Savior was here, that the salvation that was promised was now appearing in their lifetimes, in their days. They had more than a prophet. They had the fulfillment of the promises that they had been waiting on so long. The king's throne, David's throne, would no longer be vacant. It would once more be occupied by the, the ruler it was meant to hold. And the priest, who was without a son, now had more than a son. He had a son who pointed to the Son of God, who had come in 
glory, who had set aside his majesty and taken on human flesh to be the Lamb of God, to be sacrificed for our sin. This priest whose job, maybe the most exalted thing he ever did, was to offer incense on the altar of incense, was now told, your job is basically going away. All of this is going away. This place that has been the center of your worship, where you have offered up your incense to God, this is all passing because it's been fulfilled. The veil before which you've stood and offered incense will be ripped from top to bottom at the death of Jesus Christ, and all of it will be fulfilled All of your life's work will disappear, but not in a bad way, because your life's work pointed towards anticipation, and now Christ has come, and he has made all things new. Josephus says that when the veil was rent, something interesting was discovered. Behind that veil was supposed to be the Ark of the Covenant. This was supposed to be the place where God communed with his people, where the presence of God was felt. But when the veil was ripped, it was discovered that the place was empty. There was nothing there, just an empty room. Which is kind of sad until you read the book of Revelation. Because in Revelation 11, John, in a vision of heaven, describes the temple that is in heaven being opened. And as it opens wider, he says, its most holy place is revealed. And there in the temple in heaven is the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, not here on earth, not in a place made with human hands, but in the real temple on high where God's presence is known. God had not left the building. God fills all things with himself. And at the beginning of this great work of salvation, Zechariah, the priest, who has labored in anticipation, finds himself dumbstruck, literally. He finds himself without a voice. He must watch these things taking place and be unable to speak about them, unable to talk through what is going on, unable to describe his vision of Gabriel. He can't share it with the people in his life, but then it is fulfilled The child is born, his voice comes back, and when it does, he sings. Benedictus, blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.